Welcome to School Choice Report, where we explore everything about one of the most important education topics. I'm your host, David Hardy. In this podcast, we'll be talking to experts, educators, and parents to get a deep dive into the world of school choice. Whether you're an advocate, skeptic, or just curious, this podcast is for you. So sit back, relax, and let's get started with the conversation. Today we have as our guest a very interesting gentleman, Pastor Josh Robertson from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. How are you doing, Pastor Josh? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Okay. Thank you for having me on the podcast today. Tell us a little bit about your church. Sure. I pastor the Rock Church, which is in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 1501 Market Street. We are 15 blocks from the local high school and 15 blocks from the Capitol, right in the middle of the city. Now, I heard you tell your story at a dinner last month, and it was this month, and it was it was really an interesting story. And I'd I like to, to hear have our audience to hear that story. So could you share? Sure, absolutely. I was born and raised in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and, you know, I grew up in a home that very supported. You know, my father's a pastor, my mother you know, works in the church. But really, I flew under the radar because of my academic, I mean, excuse me, my athletic prowess. Um, I didn't have any academic prowess at all, but athletically, uh, basketball, football, track, you name it, I just excelled in sports. So I matriculated through the school systems, went through high school, and really the radar should have went off on me that something was wrong in my senior year when I took the SAT. I took it three times and, and scored lower than a 800. I believe they give you 300 on both sections for filling out your name correctly. So I had, you know, seven, between 720 and like a 750, my first three times taking the SAT. Missed out on, uh, you know, over 20 Division One A scholarships because of that. And uh, so I, I had to take a Division One AA scholarship at a small school in North Carolina, Gardner-Webb University. When I got to Gardner-Webb University, after three semesters, I had a 0.67 GPA. I had, yes, I had failed out. And what people didn't know was I couldn't read, right? I was, I was probably reading at a first or second grade level, but no one knew because of my athletic prowess. And, you know, I was, I was recruited by coaches to come to high schools when I was in, you know, fifth and sixth grade. So, you know, I started off. All four years of varsity basketball, you know, football athlete, all of that. But when I got to college, none of that um, could help me anymore. You know, my the professors at that school, you know, they didn't really, obviously, they didn't care about football. They cared about me. So I failed out of that school. But there was a bishop at a church in North Carolina, in Shelby, North Carolina, who, um, you know, he called me while I was en route to Altoona, Pennsylvania. And I was with a friend. I had just failed out of school. And as he calls me while I'm en route to Altoona, you know, he, he begins to ask me, when are you coming back down to North Carolina? I'm like, man, I failed out. I'm not coming back down. And he said to me, he said, man, whatever you're doing right now, you're about to ruin your life, aren't you? And after about the third or fourth time he said, aren't you? I had tears running down my face because I knew I didn't know what I was going to do. Football was over seemingly. School was over. And I was in the car with a young man who had about $50,000 worth of heroin in the truck. So I had no intention on selling drugs or anything like that. I just didn't know what to do. But this bishop took a special interest in me. He, I moved back down to North Carolina. I lived in his house. 
he enrolled himself and myself into Cleveland Area Community College. And that semester, he taught me how to read. He taught me how to be a student. And so I went from there to Lackawanna Junior College and received a full scholarship to the University of Minnesota. And now I have a bachelor's degree and a master's degree. But none of that happens without someone who loved me and took a special interest in making sure that I could uh, you know, have the discipline and the fundamental need to learn how to read. Wow. That's an amazing story. So is, is the bishop still around? So I haven't talked to him in a number of years. Um, travels quite a bit. He's not in North Carolina anymore. I believe he's in Tennessee now. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I'm going to ask you, what do you think the state of the public schools in your area? Sure. I think that that's a multi-layered conversation. I am concerned about the administration of the public school system. And the reason why I say it's multi-layered is because I know several teachers in the schools who want to educate and who, who want our children to thrive. But it seems to be for one reason or another, they're not able to do that in that system. And that's what makes me say I'm concerned about administration, because someone like myself, how can you get through 12 years of schooling and graduate and can't read? Um, That's a that's a travesty. So I think I think that, you know, I'm very concerned about our public school education, even statistically. You know, we don't rank in the top 10 of any areas that are testing in the world as far as education is concerned. So, you know, you know, we're we're not doing well. We're not being competitive. And I think that if we're not concerned about this, we'll we'll create a class of criminals if we don't do something about education. Education is essential to the uplift of our community and the uplift of people, especially in neighborhoods like the one that I pastor, the Allison Hill community where the equity in this community is not financial resources. The equity in this community is the genius and the and the um, creativity of our young people and our people who live in the community but need education as an instrument to escape some of the you know realities that we see in, in communities that are under-resourced. So I'm concerned. I said all that to say I, I, I'm concerned about public school education. Why do you think that there's so much opposition to having choices? Number one, I think that I think that if we're we're not careful, we will think about the systems instead of the students. So the systems that surround education instead of the students' need. To me, educational freedom and choice is a no-brainer. You know, if if I'm if I'm a father of three children and my oldest child thrives as an extrovert or, you know, and can go to a public school with 20 to 30 children in the classroom and succeed and do well. Okay. That's great. But what if my middle child is more of an introvert and needs a smaller, you know, environment and needs a different type of touch and a different type of care? You know, why can't I be able to make a choice to say, okay, my oldest child will go here, but my middle child will go here and my youngest child will go somewhere else and not have to be bound by a zip code. Uh, you know, I grew up in a neighborhood. My, my mom and dad didn't move out of what we call the hood until I was like 14 years old, right? So I didn't have the choice to go to private schools. When I did get to go to private schools as a kid is because I could play basketball. What about the kids who can't play basketball? What about the kids who don't, who don't, who, you know, are not interested in athletics? I think that if 
our focus and our attention and our priority is the students, then we have to consider what is best for the students and not the systems. And the other thing is, you see in low-income neighborhoods, you see less and less religious schools now because the whole cost of religious schools is sometimes sometimes prohibitive to a moderate-income family. There's a a piece of legislation that was passed in the House, the Pennsylvania State House last year, called the Lifeline Scholarship, where it will allow you to take, I think it's $6,700 of your state funding and apply it to some type of private school, and that could be a religious school. What do you think about that? I think that that is a step in the right direction. You know, as I think that the public in the, in, you know, the public sector in politics, you know, we have to learn how the, our communities, our, our business communities, you know, our government officials, our politicians, we have to work together, right? We, we have to work together and consider each other as ourselves, right? So, Thinking with the, you know, I think considering others and putting others first is essential to being able to figure out a solution for what is obviously not working in our country. And education is, is, you know, swiftly becoming a liability as it relates to our ability to compete with other countries, as it, as it relates to, you know, the jobs that are now being outsourced to other countries, what other countries are able to do to uplift their, their countries, their people. Through education here in America, we need to be able to do the same thing. So I am encouraged by that lifeline scholarship because it's a step in the right direction. It tells a, a, you know, a single mother who's in a under resourced community that her politicians and her government officials and, and people around her, they really care about her children and her legacy. And they really care about the uplift of, of her and her community in that, that we're willing to allow her to make the choice that is necessary for her child or his child um, as it relates to where they go to school. I used to run school for boys in, in Philly. You knew, you knew about that. And one thing I found is that our boys get turned off from school almost at the door. And everybody says, you know, black boys don't like school, but I've kind of thought that School doesn't like black boys. Did you feel that? Absolutely. So let me let me say this. I, I I rarely tell the other side of the of my story. I graduated with a seminary degree, with a master's degree, with straight A's. I had the highest GPA in my entire seminary when I graduated. I wasn't dumb. I just didn't have I didn't know the fundamentals of reading. I couldn't learn from reading. And, but I got diagnosed with every type of learning disability known to man as a kid, you know, they were trying to work on medicine and I just needed a different environment and a different approach, you know? So I think, you know, why would we, America, this country that is so rich in creative in, you know, you know, just creativity, like we're, we are a you know genius of a people in this country, right? Why wouldn't we use that same intellectual prowess and creative those creative muscles that we have to tailor education to the needs and personality 
of our students, right? Why would we think that a one size fits all when that's not how we live life? We don't do anything with with a one size fits all mentality. But when it comes to education, now all of a sudden we want to, you know, you know, use a one size fits all. And it's just not working. Um, statistically, it's just obvious it's not working. So I don't think that I don't think that, you know, black boys don't like school. I, I like the way you kind of said it. I, I wonder, does school like black boys? Yeah, you can tell that some schools don't. And, and, and my point for bringing that up is this. There needs to be a wide range of schools. In the Netherlands, they have like 36 different types of schools. If you have a big range, you can fit all the kids. If you have one, one type, that's going to leave a lot of people out. And I mean, look, I, I turn on my television and it tells me what my favorite channels are. Because <laughs> it, it's, it's paid attention to the channels I go to. So I turn it on. It says, these are the ones you use all the time. I mean, everything, everything is so personalized today. Why isn't school? Exactly. And that's what that's that's the reason why I said I'm concerned that the powers that be are more concerned with the system than they are with the student. Right. Like because obviously throwing more money at the system is not working. Right. The system is flawed. And and I don't I'm not trying to point fingers at anyone because I fundamentally believe in the dignity of humanity. I believe that all people, you know, to a degree or another, I believe that people want other people to succeed. And I don't think that people are maliciously, you know, undermining people's educational pursuit of greatness or, or anything like that. I think really we're just not connecting our head and our heart, right? We're 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 not looking at policy from a position of how does it impact everyone who's a part of the village. I think that if we would use that approach that, you know, how does this impact not only those who are financially well off, but how does it impact those who are not financially well off, those who, you know, are limited in their ability to make a choice as far as their education is concerned? How does it impact them? And how can we what would we want someone to do for us if we were in that position? We would want someone to think, you know, strategically and creatively to create a system that would accommodate all people. Well, I think that we see that in some areas. You see some states that have, have, have tried to move in that direction. Pennsylvania, which was a leader in, in, in this a few years ago, now is kind of lagging behind. And I think most of the fight that we see in this state is about money. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure that we're talking about the right things. You know, we're, did they get enough money or did they not get enough money? It's, it, it's what outcomes are we looking for? What kind of people are we, do we want our schools to produce? I don't see us having those kind of uh, conversations. Do you? No, I don't. And I, and that's a grave concern for me. You know, in the middle of the pandemic, you know, when, when, the, when, the, when the pandemic happened, our church here, we started receiving, I mean, 40 to 50 calls a day from parents in this community who were like, you know, the kids are home now, online school, and the parents are like, you know, just no compass for how to help them 
you know, to be successful. So they're reaching out to us and asking us what we can do. And we've, we've been finding creative ways to meet the demand. Why? One of my, my biggest concerns is that if our children, especially in neighborhoods like this, right? If our children in neighborhoods like this are already under resourced and then not given the highest level of consideration as far as their education is concerned, well, what do you turn to? You know, what do you turn to for your livelihood? You know, I, I've talked to kids in my neighborhood who I've went to their house and they don't even have a bed to sleep on or nowhere to put their clothes, right? They're sleeping on the floor. They're eating dinner on the floor, right? And so, but what do you do when you walk outside and you see someone outside who has a street business, right? And and they're not eating on the floor and, and they have plenty in their home, but you don't have any other viable choices to pull yourself out of that. You, like, where's the so if we're not careful, you know, through this pandemic and coming out of this pandemic, if we don't consider the least of these, we could create a whole class of people that will turn to crime in order to sustain themselves. It's not, so I, I've, I've yet to meet a drug dealer who really dealt drugs because they just wanted to and they just aspired to do it. It was more out of, well, what else am I going to do? I got to eat. I have to take care of myself. And then it grows from there into some other, you know, passions and, and desires. But originally, most times people were just doing it to survive. I'll give you a statistic that kind of bears that out. In 2005 in Philadelphia, they, they uh, did a study, all the graduates, and followed them out seven years to see how, excuse me, eight years to see how it turned out. And they found that African-American boys graduated 47% of the time of the, in that class, okay? And of that 47%, 13% had an outcome that was different from a dropout, okay? So that means 87% of those kids had no skills when they, no marketable skills when they left here. You know, when 87% of the boys in your schools come out with no skills, that's like gravy for people doing anything illegal or immoral or anything else. Because you're talking about a bunch of people with no skills that can't support themselves. Exactly. Exactly. But but what I find is interesting is, you know, the the, the street pharmacists, right, have the genius to you know, transport drugs and, and all other type of criminal activity. And and if you know anything about drug dealing or gangbang or anything, you know, for, for those who do well at it, it's, it's a business, right? It's like you're talking about people who are conducting business at a high level. And just imagine if we would use that creative, you know, th- those creative muscles that they have. And if we would use their entrepreneurial type of skills and talent that it takes to do the wrong thing. If we would empower them to do the right thing, right? Like why wouldn't we be trying to be as, as Americans on the forefront of progress uh, for people and tapping into this, I believe population of people that I think sometimes we just overlook people who are, you know, you know, disenfranchised communities and everything. These are people, these are people, 
right? These are people. And the investment of our country into people is what we were founded upon. We were founded upon the principles of people being able to freely be willing to, as much as they are willing to work hard for it, uplift themselves and their community. And so for me, I'm saying, you know, I don't, we don't need handouts. We just need to appropriately distribute the resources that we have so that people can make choices that best suit their life as far as education is concerned. Well, Pastor Josh, what gives you hope? Honestly, what gives me hope, (laughs) and I don't mean to be cliche, but what gives me hope is that my savior was (laughs) bludgeoned on a cross, died and was raised from the grave, right? And if he can die, not mind you, mind you, Dave, my family is in mortuary science, right? My family is funeral, you know, uh, funeral folks, right? I went to the funeral home, right? I, I know what dead looks like, right? I've, I've touched the dead. I've, I've helped embalm. I've done all of that. For someone to die, that's final. But my hope in Jesus, Jesus has been raised from the dead. He defeated death. And the reason why I say that is because if God can defeat even death, then certainly he can uplift the country. Certainly he can uplift the community. So number one, the reason why I have hope is because my hope is in Christ, not in politics, not in education. My hope is in Christ. But secondly, let me ground that lofty thought. My hope is in churches that punctuate our community, that are at every block. I believe that the collaboration of churches that will be on the forefront of holding our politicians accountable, our government officials accountable for how they handle the responsibilities that we vote them into. I think that if as pastors and churches, if we begin to use our voice to speak to the things that concern us and concern our community, as well as work in collaboration with one another to provide spaces for people, for children to come to, to be tutored, to be mentored, that we could partner with schools, whatever it may be. But I think that the church, like I said, that is in the middle of all these communities, if we begin to put our hats on, our thinking caps on, and think about solutions, I think that we're positioned, strategically positioned in the middle of these communities to make a difference, to begin to collaborate with each other, that we would put our denominational distinctions to the side and not let them divide us, but, you know, gather under the banner of, you know, religion, whatever that may be, whether it's Christianity, whether it's other world religions, but we can all gather under the banner of let's uplift our community together. And I truly believe that people are desiring that. I hear more people expressing desire for that. So my, I am hopeful because I'm hearing more and more people concerned about these issues, such as education, freedom, and school choice. I'm hearing more people say, well, what about that? And asking for more information about that. So as a, as a pastor and a thought leader and a community leader, I've been doing my, my level best to partner with other pastors and beha- begin having these conversations so that we can begin to speak to our congregations and and really begin to make a move towards how can we work together to uplift each other. Pastor Joshua Robinson, thank you so much for joining us today. What an interesting story. What a dynamic person. And I, I wish you all the best. 
in your work in Harrisburg. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. All right. Take care. That's it for today's episode of School Choice Report. I hope you found the conversation enlightening and informative. If you have any feedback, questions, or suggestions for future episodes, please reach out to us at schoolchoicereport.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. Until next time, this is David Hardy signing off. Thanks for tuning in.